So today is our final Sunday, so week number eight, in an eight-week-long series where we have been thinking together, as most of you know, about He Who Gathers. The last two months, we've been learning about the gathering nature of God, why it is that God, like a shepherd, gathers his people to himself. And we've talked about a lot of different and important reasons why he does that, and I won't recount all of those to you, but there are some important reasons that God wants us to come together in his presence. If you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that our text last Sunday in Matthew 25 emphasized the royal character of Jesus. Our text last Sunday emphasized the fact that Jesus is a king. In fact, let me, uh, let me read to you just a couple of verses from last week's text in Matthew 25, just to remind you, listen to verse 31, Jesus speaking. He says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, in his regal or majestic glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Jesus said, I'm coming one day with all of my glory, and when I do, I'm going to sit upon a glorious throne. And then in verse 34, last week we read, Then shall the king, that's King Jesus, say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 31, Jesus says, The king is coming. I'm going to come as king. I'm going to sit upon a glorious throne. I'm going to establish a kingdom and I will welcome some people into that kingdom, and others will be banned or prohibited from uh, that kingdom. Now, we were talking last week about the judgment of the nations. This is this moment when Christ comes in the revelation and the second coming and establishes his earthly kingdom. This is the, the gathering of the nations where he will pronounce judgment over the Gentile nations. But the point is, and what I wanted to remind you of today, is that, is that the text emphasized the kingship of Jesus, that Jesus is a king. In fact, I want, you to, I want you to help me this morning. Would you turn to the person sitting next to you, and if they're socially distanced from you, just say it loud enough where they can hear you. Will you tell them that Jesus is a king? Just do it now. Just tell them, Jesus is a king. Yeah, th that was the point from last week. And it's the point that I want you to learn today. Jesus is a king. Now you should know that even as we say that and we affirm that to be biblically correct and absolutely true, there are plenty of people in this world and in fact, sadly, there are plenty of people within the walls of the church who seek to deny Jesus that kingly position. That is, that we acknowledge with our minds that he is king, we read it in the Bible that he's king, but then we deny him the royal right of authority in our lives. There are plenty of people who love and will accept a saving Jesus. They appreciate a suffering Jesus. They love a passive Jesus. A Jesus who asks little to nothing of them while always giving to them 
everything that they want. That's the Jesus that people like. There are plenty of people who who want a Jesus who is constantly bending low to rescue and help us, but they're not interested in a Jesus before whom we must bow low and surrender our lives and ourselves to him. And yet, if you understand biblically who Jesus is, this is exactly what the Bible says. He is a king. Let me say it this way. He is the king. Let me say it even more personally. He is my king and he is your king. And the Bible affirms this over and over again. Now, we're going to see this in Revelation chapter 4, but before we do, I want to walk you through about three different passages of Scripture. We'll do this really quickly, but I want you to see that the idea of the royal right, the majestic uh, kingship of Jesus is not a new idea. It's not a last book of the Bible concept, okay? So if you want to turn with me, you can. You don't have to. I'm going to begin in Daniel chapter 6. Maybe you'll just make a note of it somewhere and turn and read it later. But let me, let me read to you from Daniel chapter number uh, uh, 7, rather. Daniel 7, beginning in verse number 13. So if we're, if we're reading from the book of Daniel, we know we're reading prophecy, right? This is uh, hundreds of years before Jesus is born. He's looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And here's his vision. Daniel 7 And verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, by the way, there's another place in the New Testament where this idea of Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven is mentioned. It's a really significant place. It's in Matthew chapter 26, and it's the moment that Jesus is standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, on the night that he's been arrested. And the high priest says to him, I demand of you, tell me, are you the son of God? And Jesus answers. And Jesus says, I am. And then Jesus quotes Daniel 7, 13 to the high priest. And he goes on to say, and you shall see me coming in the clouds of glory. Wow, that's why the high priest ripped his robe and said, blasphemy. Because Jesus just in that verse took Daniel 7, 13 and appropriated it to himself. He said, that's who I am. I am the one that Daniel saw. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, a one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him, and there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all people and all nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is that which shall never be destroyed. Here's what I want you to know. In the book of Daniel, as one prophetic example, and there are plenty more, but in the book of Daniel, you have this prophecy of Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If y'all are with me, go like this. Amen. You you with me? The, the, The book of Daniel prophesies that Jesus is the King. And then, if you're turning with me, go to the Gospel of Luke. 
Because in Luke chapter number one, you have a New Testament example, a a moment where coming out of the Old Testament, now the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and he's going to promise her something uh, incredible that's going to happen. Luke chapter one, verse 30, the angel said unto her, fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you shall conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So he's prophesied to be the king. Now Gabriel shows up in Nazareth and says to Mary, you're going to deliver the Messiah, that king promised in Daniel. Verse 32, he shall be great, and he shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and forever. Daniel prophesied that Jesus would be a king. Gabriel promised Mary that the child that she would deliver would be the king. And then there's one other passage in the Gospel of John. And this has to do with this moment when Jesus, in John chapter number 18, is standing before the Roman governor Pilate. He's already been arrested. He's already said to Caiaphas, the high priest, I am the son of God. I'm coming with the clouds. Now he's the next morning standing in front of Pilate, the Roman governor. He's been accused by the Jews of claiming to be the king. And listen to, listen to this conversation. I'm in John 18 and verse number uh, 30, 35. Verse 33. Pilate entered the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king or not? Jesus answered and said, Are you saying this yourself, or did others tell it uh, thee of me? Pilate answered and said, Am I a Jew, your own people, your own nation? And the chief priests have delivered you unto me. What have you done? And Jesus said in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. And Pilate said, oh, you are a king then. And Jesus said, you're right. You have rightly said. Here's the point. Daniel prophesied that Jesus would be a king. Gabriel promised Mary that her son would be the king. And Jesus himself affirmed with his own words and his actions that he was, in fact, the king. Here you have the prophesied, promised, and practicing king of all eternity walking through this life and how was he received? What happened? What did they offer to this king? What kind of crown did they give him? Matthew chapter 27 tells us what kind of crown they gave him. Verse number 29 says, and when they had plaited, woven together a crown of thorns, a crown made with long, razor sharp, hard as nails, sharp as needles, thorns, A crown plaited together, they placed that on his head. That was his crown. And a reed was in his right hand, a mock scepter, a little leaning, weak scepter. And they bowed the knee, mocking before him, and mockingly said to him, Hail, King of the Jews. There's your king. There's the reception that the prophesied, promised, and practicing king of all eternity received when he was here on this earth. Mockery and murder. That's what he received. They took him out and nailed him to a cross and he died. 
But we know the rest of the story, don't we? And the rest of the story is that on the third day after his burial, he rose again from the dead and he conquered, defeated death, proving that he is in fact the king. And once he had risen, he ascended to heaven. And by the way, Acts 1.11 tells us that when he ascended to heaven, two angels said, Daniel 7.13 is true, that one going up in the clouds is coming back in the clouds again. Why? Because he's king. He ascended to the throne in heaven, took his seat, and established his kingdom. And the kingdom that he established is a spiritual kingdom. It's at work in the world. It is present. It is active. It is powerful. It is real. It is here now. It is active in the world, but it's a spiritual kingdom administered by his church and advanced through the gospel. That is the kingdom that he established. But here's the fact. One day he will come again and establish an earthly kingdom. By the way, we affirm this every single time here at Brookstone when we say out loud our vision statement together. We affirm that he's the king and that he has a kingdom. Would you say it with me? They're going to put it on the screen for us. I want you to read it out loud and say it like you believe it. It's been a while since we've done this, all right? So let's do it. We believe that Jesus came to build a church that would overpower the forces of hell and enlarge the kingdom of God. And we envision being that church. When we say those words, we are affirming that Jesus is the king and that he has a kingdom. Here's the thing. One day Christ will come and he will bring the kingdom into the earth. It will no longer be a spiritual kingdom. It will be a literal kingdom. And he will rule this world as king of kings and lord of lords. But before he does that, there's going to be a gathering. And we're talking about gatherings in these days. There's going to be a gathering, and I want you to see this gathering in Revelation chapter number 4. It is a gathering for the coronation of King Jesus. Before he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, he must be crowned as king. So let's read about it. Revelation chapter number 4, beginning in verse number 1. Believe it or not, I'm only going to read two verses. Don't get too excited. I'm going to preach the whole chapter, but I'm only going to read two verses. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Everybody look up here for a second. If you're glad heaven's not a closed place, but it's an open place, would you shout amen? Praise God for that. A door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, saying, come up here. Come up hither, and I will show thee, uh, show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. Over the years, as we've studied the book of Revelation together, I have explained to you that in order to properly understand the book of Revelation, you have to remember always that it presents us with a view, a parallel view of earth and heaven at the same time. And whenever you're reading the book, you need to realize that, that you're, you can see what's happening in both places and you need to make sure that you're reading or that you're applying what you're reading to the proper place. In other words, don't read something that's happening in heaven as if it's happening on the earth. And don't read something that's happening on the earth as if it's reading in uh, happening in heaven. So it gives you a parallel view. 
In fact, go back one page to Revelation chapter number one. The Bible says in verse number uh, nine, Revelation one verse nine, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So where is John in chapter one? Is he in heaven? No, he's on the earth. He's on the island called Patmos. We know this island. We know where it is uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Mediterranean today. So he's on the Isle of Patmos. But in chapter 4, he goes up to heaven. When chapter 4 says, behold, a door. After this, a door was opened in heaven. And a voice said to me, come up here. So in the text, John is taken up into heaven. So what we're going to read in chapter 4 is happening in heaven. It's not happening on the earth. And here's what that means. It means that what you're going to read is going to be a description of things you've never seen before. That the things that you're going to read about in chapter 4 are heavenly things that don't fit any experience that you've ever had on the earth. They're heavenly, okay? You with me? So let's go to heaven. You want to go to heaven today? Let's go to heaven, at least in chapter number 4. Write this down if you're a note taker. Let's begin by seeing in this passage heaven's great assembly. Heaven's great assembly. One day, um, perhaps on a day not too far in the future, there is going to be a grand assembly in heaven, a complete assembly in heaven. And that assembly is described in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. I want us to begin thinking about this assembly by noting, first of all, who is going to be there? Who's going to be in this great assembly? Look with me in chapter 4, verses 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around about the throne there were four beasts, the King James says. More modern translations will say living creatures. There were four beasts. Now, these are four very special angels, specialized angels, angels created with a special purpose and role. They're the same angels that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter number six. And in that passage, they're called seraphim. Maybe you've heard that word before, the seraphs or the seraphim. These are four very unique Beautifully created, but to our thinking, odd creatures. Verse number six at the end of the verse says they have eyes before and behind. That is, they can look forward, they can look backward. Now, we've never seen anything like that before. Our eyes only look forward. Now, some of you are thinking, when I was growing up, my mother had eyes in the back of her head. I've seen this before. Or at least she told you she did, right? Now, these are four specially created angels, but they can see in all directions. They go on to be described in verse 7, again, and in what seems to us as odd. The first beast was like a lion. The second beast was like a calf. The third beast had the face of a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Uh, A lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Now, I don't know why they were created this way. There there are different reasons that people conjecture uh, why they're created like this. Some have Proposed that they represent all of creation. You've got the wild animal kingdom and the lion. You've got the domesticated animals and the calf. You've got man. And then you've got the the flying uh, birds of the air. Maybe that's it. I don't know. 
But for whatever reason, God has created four special angels who bear this appearance. Verse number eight says, the four beasts, each of them had six wings about him. They are full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And so they, Isaiah tells us they fly around the throne of God all the time. They never stop. They never rest. From the day of their creation, this is what they have done, declaring the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. And do you know what? They never get tired. And I don't believe God gets tired of their cry of holy either. I love new music, contemporary worship music. I love the old hymns too, but I love the way that we worship God with songs that sing directly to him. But sometimes people have criticized newer music by saying, well, it's so repetitive, right? We just, you sing the same words over and over again. I don't like to sing the same words over and over again. And I've often said, have you ever read about those angels in heaven that just have three words in their entire song? And they sing them every service. And they have service every day and they never stop. And they're constantly singing, holy, holy, holy. Here's the fact. We might get tired of singing the same thing to God, but God never gets tired of hearing us sing it. They cry, holy, holy, holy. Who's going to be there? These seraphim will be there. Then chapter 5, verse 11 tells us there will be other angels there. Chapter 5, verse 11, I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them were 10,000, the number of the angels were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now that's a lot of angels. Can we agree on that? 10,000 times 10,000, and I don't know if this is intended to be an exact mathematic equation, but if you do the math, that's 100 million. And then thousands of thousands is innumerable thousands beyond that. So who's going to be at this assembly? These four living creatures and then this innumerable host of angels. But there's a third group that will be in this assembly. I just mentioned them in chapter number 5, verse 11, where it talks about the beasts and the angels, and chapter 5, verse 11, the elders. The elders will be there. Who are the elders? We'll look at them in chapter 4. You'll see them in chapter 4 in verse 4. Around the throne there were 24 seats, or little thrones, and upon these seats I saw 24 elders sitting The elders are encircling the throne. They're sitting upon littler, smaller thrones or seats and they are robed, verse 4 says, in white raiment and on their head they had crowns of gold. Now who are the elders? Well, the elders are the church of Jesus Christ. This is us. These elders represent the church. So who's coming to the assembly? The special angels crying holy, holy. All the innumerable angels And then every person who's been saved throughout the ages, that's the church or the elders. Now, you might ask the question, it'd be a fair question, Pastor, how do you know that these elders represent the church? I'm not making it up as I go. We know it because of what they're wearing. First of all, they're wearing white robes. And the Bible says in Revelation 19, verse 7, that those who wear white robes in heaven are the saints, the bride of Christ, who are wearing the righteousness of Jesus. That's how I know. That's because of what they're wearing. But not only the robes, the crowns. The Bible never says that angels wear crowns. Angels don't get crowns. But who gets crowns? The church receives crowns when we go to the Bema seat, the uh, the, uh, judgment seat of Christ. Crowns for faithful service to him. Do you know the Bible says there are five crowns that you might uh, be rewarded with when you get to heaven? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be wonderful to get to heaven and have the, the honor, the humble honor of, of, of Christ saying to you, you're so faithful, here's your reward. 
and he gives you one of these five crowns, or yeah, even maybe more than one. The Bible speaks of an imperishable crown, of a crown of rejoicing, of a crown of righteousness, a crown of glory, and a crown of life. These are all crowns offered to saints for faithful service. And when I see the elders robed in white and wearing crowns, I know that this must be the church. In Revelation 3 and verse 11, uh, Jesus warns the church at Philadelphia, don't let anybody take your crown. Don't lose your crown, but be faithful. Now think about this. The the Bible says that in this great assembly in heaven, you're going to have all the seraphim, these four special angels, then all these innumerable uh, run-of-the-mill average angels, if there's such a thing, and then the church is going to be gathered. Now think of this. The angels, the the seraphim, the four angels that cry, holy, 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 they've always been there. They've never left the presence of God. Every day since the day of their creation, that's where they've been and what they've been doing. Those innumerable angels, the 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, they've always been in the service of God. They've always been worshiping and serving him. Now, the Bible speaks of angels that work among us and us entertaining angels unawares and and guardian angels who are ministering spirits to the saints. And so they're sort of coming and going and in heaven and out of heaven and down to the earth and helping you. and, and, And so those angels have not always been in his presence physically. They've been going back and forth and serving him. But then the church, they've been gathering there. The elders have been gathering in heaven since the resurrection of Jesus. And they continue to gather every single moment, every, every few moments. Another saint somewhere in the world slips out of this world, draws their last breath, and immediately they're called up into this assembly in Revelation chapter number 4. But here's the thing. The coronation of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords will not happen until all of us are there. Until every one of the angels and the seraphim and all of the elders, the church, are fully gathered. And when all the ones are there, all the assembly has gathered, then we will crown him as king. And you may be thinking, well, man, when's that going to be? we got to wait on that last Christian to die. You imagine every Christian in all of history up in heaven going, come on, man, give it up. And he just won't die. No, we don't have to wait on the last one to die. Here's what the Bible says. There's coming a moment when we'll all be gathered in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I talked about it last week. In the rapture, we will be called up to heaven. And there's coming a moment when the, when the circle around the throne will be completed when the rapture occurs. And when that happens, we will all be there and we will crown him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? What a great assembly that is going to be. I met a precious lady after our first service this morning. I think she said it was the third time she's ever been to Brookstone. She introduced herself to me after the first service and she said, thank you for for that message this morning. I lost my daughter in March. And she said, this helped me. It gave me a, a vision of what she is experiencing even right now. Praise God for that hope. A great assembly in heaven. Secondly, this passage speaks to us of Heaven's high throne. You'll see this in chapter 4 and verse number 2. Heaven's high throne. Now, let me acknowledge that we have a lot of imaginative thoughts, a lot of ideas about what heaven is going to be like and what we will enjoy or value or appreciate the most about heaven when we get there. And these ideas run the gamut from 
you know, I've told you a lot of times before, the fishermen thinking we're going to go to heaven and fish and always catch the big one. And the golfer thinking we're going to golf in heaven and always be a hole in one. And, you know, we, we, we have these ideas, whatever we love on earth, we think, well, it'll be so much better and it'll be perfect in heaven. And, and a lot of our imaginative ideas are not based in Scripture at all. And some of them that are based in Scripture, we get a little bit out of order in terms of priority because some of us are the most excited about meeting our departed loved ones when we get to heaven. And that's going to be wonderful. And we ought to be excited about that. And we will be reunited with them if they knew the Lord. But that's not what we're going to value the most when we get there. What John's uh, experience teaches us in verse number two, it's very instructive, is that when he got to heaven, look at it, chapter four, verse number one, the door opens, he's called up into heaven. Verse two, immediately I was in the spirit and whoa, behold, a throne. When John got to heaven, he didn't say, there's Peter, James, and John, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's my grandmama and my granddaddy. Here's what he said. There's the throne of God. His focus, his delight was completely centered on the glory of God seated upon his throne. And this is what it will be for us as well. Verse number two says, behold, a throne was set in heaven. The word set means it is established. It's unmoving. It's eternal. It's the focal point and it will never change. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Presidents are elected and then they're voted out of office. Governors come to power, governors lose power. Monarchs rise and monarchies die. But the fact of the matter is there is one kingdom that is rooted in the throne of God in heaven. It is set and established and it will never end. Amen. It is heaven's high throne. And John gets to heaven and he says, behold, verse number two, a throne was set in heaven. Now, who's on this throne? Whose throne is this? What's the throne of God, right? What's the throne of God? Throne of Jesus, throne of the Spirit. That's the throne of God. It's It's the throne of the Godhead. It is the throne of the Trinity. They're all present. Remember, they are one. And yet they are all present there. And John describes what he saw of each of these three persons of the Godhead. Look at it in verse number two when he says, immediately there was a throne set in heaven, behold, or I was in heaven, and a throne was set there, and one sat upon the throne. Verse three. And he that sat upon the throne to look at was like looking at a jasper, a sardine, a gemstone, a diamond. It's interesting. When he describes God the Father seated on the throne, he doesn't use any physical characteristics. If you go back to chapter 1, he saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. He said, this is what his eyes were like. This is what his hair was like. This is what his feet were like. This is what he was wearing. But when he defines or when he describes God seated on the throne, the Bible says God is a spirit. He didn't say anything about God the Father's eyes or, or feet or hair. He said, when I looked at God, when, when my eyes were cast toward the throne of Almighty God, it was like the brilliant reflections of a giant gemstone. There was no person there to look at. There, were, there, there was no features there to see. It was just this glorious reflecting of the honor and the glory of God. Sparkling like, the, like a fiery diamond. Sparkling. He saw God. He also saw God the Son. He saw uh, Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 6. says he saw Jesus like the Lamb of God. 
the Lamb of God, the crucified one. He described Jesus in that way. And in chapter 4 and verse number 5, he describes the Spirit of God as being seven lamps of fire around the throne. And this is what the Holy Spirit does, right? He illuminates and he burns and he purifies. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's the point. John gets to heaven. He says, whoa, there's a throne. And suddenly in one moment, he recognizes the Father, the Son, the Spirit, these reflections of glory, the Lamb of God slain and the light and the power and the fire of the Holy Spirit. He saw God seated upon his throne. Verse number three, he that sat upon the throne looked like this. I love that. Now, I want to see my grandfather when I get to heaven. I believe he's there, and I'm looking forward to seeing my dad when I get to heaven. I know my dad is there, and, and that's going to be wonderful. But I have to tell you, if I get to heaven and I see this incredible vision of these reflections of God's glory and the Lamb of God and the Spirit of God, Dad's going to have to play second fiddle. Amen. I mean, I want to see him, but he just can't compare. As great as he was, he just can't compare to the glory of God. He sees God. And then he describes the throne or what's happening around the throne. Now, I know I'm getting into some detail here, but I don't want you to miss any of what's happening in this gathering. He describes what a glorious throne this throne of God is. Look at chapter four and verse number three. He that sat upon the throne was like a jasper or sardine stone and he noted there was a rainbow round about the throne that looked like an emerald or in color. It must have been a beautiful and bright green. This rainbow around the throne. And by the way, it totally encircled the throne. So it wasn't a rainbow like we see. It wasn't just the the, the, the uh, light spectrum being broken up by, by water and sunlight or vapor and sunlight. This was one color, green, and it was complete. We don't ever see the complete rainbow here on earth, do we? We always see two ends of the rainbow. And we always look for the end of the rainbow. Why do you look for the end of the rainbow? Because the leprechaun told you there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there's no such things as leprechauns and there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But we always look for it. And in heaven, there's not a rainbow that ends, pot of gold or no. There is a continuous rainbow. This is really important because what does the rainbow represent? It is the sure mercy of God. That his mercies will be new every morning. And it's not a half promise, a half a rainbow or just a reminder. It is a complete, unending promise of the mercies of God. Here's what I want to tell you, that God, the rainbow promises he will never judge in that way again. And when I get to heaven, every single day of my eternal existence, I will see a rainbow telling me that in a million years I'll be safe and in a billion years I'll be safe and in a trillion years his mercies will still be new because his mercies never, ever, ever, ever end. I see a rainbow, he says. And then he says in chapter four and verse number five, and then there's these flashes of light out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices of praise. Imagine this, this lightnings of thunder and peals, or lightning flashes and peals of thunder and shouts of praise coming out. And then chapter 4 and verse number 6 says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Imagine this. You've got these angels crying, holy, holy, holy. You've got innumerable angels around singing, God is worthy. We bless you. You've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and 
Peter and James and John and all the disciples and the saints of the ages, and there you and I are in the midst of it, and you've got the throne with these reflections of God's glory and the Lamb of God standing there crucified and risen and the burning Spirit of God and these flashes and thunders that all reflecting off of this glass floor before it. I think you and I, like John, would be swept up in the moment of praise to God that we're even there. That's what he's describing. He says this was a high and a glorious throne. And this is where that final assembly or gathering will occur. And when all the church gets there and when all the angels are surrounded and when this assembly happens, something very significant will occur. If y'all are listening, shout amen. In that moment, Jesus will be crowned. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now he's king now. He's king whether he wears the crown or not, but he will be crowned king. Watch what will happen. Write it down if you will. Let's talk as we close about the coronation of Jesus. By the way, um, I should acknowledge we don't know much about coronations, do we? We take pride in the fact that we are a representative republic. We're a democracy. We don't have king. It's the people who uh, the government is of the people, by the people, for the people. We're proud of that. We don't, we don't know much about monarchies, much about kings or queens. And we certainly know very little about coronations, especially because the only real history that we have with a, a crown, with a monarchy, is our history with Great Britain, with England. And, and they have not had a coronation in almost 70 years because Queen Elizabeth won't die. You ever feel bad for Charles? <laughs> I mean, the poor guy just wants to be king and his mama's going to outlive him. She, she was court, crowned queen of England when her father, I think King George, died in 1953. And she's still queen today. So we, we haven't even seen a coronation on TV. The closest we come to it is a presidential inauguration, which is very different but similar, at least in the pomp and the circumstance that attends such a ceremony. But in a, in a coronation, you don't have the passing of power peacefully from one party or one president to another by the vote of the people. What you have is all power, all authority seated in one individual, one king or one queen. And their power and their glory and their might is so great over their subjects that their coronation is attended with all of the regalia, all of the royal regalia that you could imagine. I'm talking about the robes and the long flowing train on the robe and the, and the ornate crown upon the head and the golden scepter in each hand and so much so that at the coronation the subjects kneel before the king or the queen. We don't know anything about that. But if you know Jesus... You're going to know something about it one day. Because what happens when a king or a queen is, is crowned can only be called adoration. It's not acknowledgement of your position. It's not, well, you won the election. It is, you are my king. And I adore you. This is exactly what happens when Jesus is crowned. He is adored. And you see this in chapter 4, verses 9 and 11, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. 
Let me just read them to you. Chapter 4, verse 9, when these beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him. Verse 11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Chapter 5 and verse number 12, they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, and every creature that was in heaven and on the earth and under the earth such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sits upon the throne and to the lamb that lives forever. In the moment of this coronation, it's not a simple acknowledgement. Yes, Jesus, you're our king. We're glad to be a part of your kingdom. It is adoration and they say things like you have glory, you have, receive honor, you get power, you have riches, you have wisdom. But there's two things I would note about this that is that in chapter 4, verses 9 and 11, they speak of his honor and his, his, um, uh, uh, his honor and his glory. And then in chapter 4, verse 9, it says they give thanks. Now, I'm almost finished. I want you to listen very carefully to this question. Are you a grateful person? Do you live with gratitude to God? I mean, grateful for a day of life, grateful for breath in your lungs, grateful for clothes on your back, whatever. But here's the thing. Do you notice that when John arrives in heaven, the one thing when he's acknowledging and adoring Jesus for his glory and his honor, he says, thank you. That this ought to be the posture of every worshiping saying, it will be when we're in heaven, thank you that we even get to be here. And then he says, not only did we give thanks, but it also says we give you blessing. The word blessing is like, it's the root word is where we get our word eulogize. It means to speak of his power and his riches and his wisdom. And so they, they give him honor and glory and power and riches and wisdom. We, we ascribe those things to him because he lives forever. See this in chapter 4, verses number 9 and 10. To him who lives forever and ever. This is why we will worship him in that way. He lives forever. This is a throwback to chapter one when John sees Jesus on the Isle of Patmos and Jesus says, you know who I am? I'm the one who is alive. Oh, and by the way, I was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. He's the risen one. We will praise him because he lives forevermore. Number two, because he's the creator of all things. Chapter four, verse number 11, for you have created, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. They were created for your pleasure. Number three, because he's redeemed us to God. He's the lamb of God who died. This is the new song they sing in chapter five, verse number nine. You're worthy to take the book for you were slain and you've redeemed us to God. Now, as we finish, I want you to put yourself there. Seriously, I, I, I want you to try to imagine this moment. It could happen. I'm not joking. It could happen today when the rapture of the church occurs, the gathering will be complete. And it will, it will happen. Put yourself there in the presence of God, surrounded, surrounding the throne of God with all of the saints through the ages. You're there with angels. You're there with seraphim. The glory of this great throne that John describes with all of its reflecting glory and peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and sea of crystal and bowing down and worshiping and praising what would be the most natural thing in the world for you to do in that moment? Now, if when, when we arrive there, we will go to the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ where Paul describes how that we will receive reward or suffer loss based on whether or not 
we have been faithful to the Lord. I want you to know this, believer. You're going to be judged one day, not for your sin. Praise God, Jesus was judged for your sin. Not to determine whether or not you're going to get into heaven. If you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. But you will be judged for how you lived your life, for what you did or didn't do for Jesus. And if you have been faithful to him and built a life on on solid ground, then you will receive reward. And the Bible says that those rewards will be in the form of one of five crowns. Well, if you're in the presence of Jesus, the one who lives forever, who made all things and redeemed you, and these, and these flashes of light and this glory is happening around the throne of God, and there you sit on your little seat, and you've got a little crown on your head, and Jesus is receiving all glory and all honor and all blessing and all power, what are you going to do? You going to keep your crown on your head? It would be the most... I don't even know what the word is. It would be the most, there's no word for it. You don't keep the crown on your head. So look at what happens. Chapter number four and verse number 10. And the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy. I'm not worthy You, O Lord, are worthy of this crown because of who you are and what you've done. And so we will take our crowns and we will give them to the one and only King, King Jesus. And if you'll turn to Revelation 19, you'll see what happens then. The next thing that occurs, Revelation 19, the Bible describes how that Jesus comes back, beginning in verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened... Behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And verse number 16 says, and he comes back, and he has this title, he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One day. By the grace of Almighty God, you and I who know Jesus will find ourselves surrounded by angels and seraphim in the presence of God, in the presence of the Lamb of God, in the light and the power of the Spirit of God on our faces with our crowns off of our heads and crowning Jesus as King. And when that coronation is complete, heaven will open again and Jesus will come and establish his kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen. Now you say, Pastor, what do I do with that? If I believe that, what do I do with that? There's one thing you need to do, and that is to crown him king today. Crown him today. Some of you know him as your savior, but you have despised the idea of a king. You love a suffering savior. You love a passive, saving, rescuing, helpful Jesus. You like the idea of going to heaven But the idea of a king who is sovereign over your life, you have resisted and bristled at. Make him king today. And some of you have never trusted Christ as your savior. And today is the day you need to trust him and make him your king. Whether or not you say he's king has no bearing on the reality that he is king. And so you just need to come into alignment with what is true and say, I will let him be my king.